It's a big hello to all you intrepid Tudor time travellers out there. Welcome friends to the month of June. Well, a little like May, June is also one of my favourite months in England for similar reasons. The gardens really are at their best. It's when all the roses come out. And so if you're out and about visiting Tudor locations that have particularly glorious gardens, it can really be a wonderful time of year. So it's apt, therefore, that in today's travel show, we are going to be looking at a very, very special garden, which I introduced to you just a couple of episodes back. And that's the lost garden that Dig Ventures were searching for at Sudley Castle. If you remember, they were looking for a lost Elizabethan garden. And the question is, having done two weeks of excavation, did they find it? Well, in this programme, I go along and meet again, this time in person with Maya from Dig Ventures, who tells us all about the extraordinary things that they found there. While I was at Sudley Castle, I also had chance to catch up with Melita Thomas from the Tudor Times. Now, the Tudor Times have just launched a new book, the Tudor Book of the Garden. And so what better time than to sit down amongst the blooms in Sudley Castle's gardens and talk about the book. So we'll be catching up with Melita a little later on. From a Tudor history perspective, June was a seismic month from the coronation of Anne Boleyn to the celebrations around the birth of the future King Henry VIII at Greenwich to Cromwell's darkest days as he was arrested and conveyed to the Tower. Well, we'll be hearing from the TTG news desk with all the news that's breaking. But first of all, we're going to head over to the first ever Tudor travel show outdoor on-site recording. It was really exciting for me to get away from behind the desk and to go on-site and meet with a group of historical enthusiasts who are trying to search for and find out all about Collie Weston in Northamptonshire. Now Collie Weston was perhaps most famously one of the favoured residents of the indomitable Margaret Beaufort, mother of King Henry VII. Now, the palace of Collie Weston has been long lost, but now there is a new quest to try and find its location and the extent of the palace. Last month, I had the pleasure of going along to Collie Weston to see the beginning of this archaeological project, which will last over the summer months. And I caught up with the president of the Collie Weston Historical Society, Chris Close, in a residence back garden where the first of the trenches were being opened up. And just before we head over and listen to that interview, a point of clarity, you will hear Chris talking about the Tudor procession that came to Collie Weston 
And in this regard, he's referring to the marriage procession of Margaret Tudor as she moved from London to Scotland to become the Scottish Queen. The royal party stayed at Collie Weston for a period of time before Margaret moved on, having said goodbye to her family. So without further ado, let's head over and hear what Chris has to say about this remarkable project. Hello Chris, here we are in Collie Weston. Now for those people, because I've got um, listeners from all over the world, mm -hmm. so for those people who don't know where Collie Weston is, can you first of all just place us geographically in England? Yes, so uh, we're located on the A43 mm -hmm. um, in North Northamptonshire, so we're about uh, five miles from Stamford. And uh, um, yes, so we overlook the beautiful Welland Valley. And it is indeed beautiful here, yes. isn't it? There's a great view in front of me. There's a few trees there obscuring the view, but I can see we're sort of on the side of a valley, looking down into a valley that rises on the far side there. Yes, the River Welland at the bottom um, is the uh, dividing line between Northamptonshire and Rutland. Okay. So everything on the far side of the valley is all Rutland. So and, and I'm here today in somebody's back garden yes. and there are a number of trenches and tents and people hard at work digging. Yes. So perhaps you can tell us what on earth's going on here. Well, um, we, uh, we started this project back in September where we, um, uh, for our um, society, which is Collie Western Historical Society, we asked the members each year what it is they, they would like to learn about for the forthcoming 12 months. And uh, the overriding um, uh, decision really was to find out more about the palace. Um, so the palace that we've got here in Collie Weston, um, I was brought up in the village and it's always been a bit of a myth. We, we've known there's been something here, but we've never known how big, who stayed here. Um, so we've, we've got... But we do know, don't we, that Collie Weston was a major Tudor residence we of, do. of a certain Lady Margaret Beaufort. Lady Margaret Beaufort indeed, yes. Um, we, we've, we've had uh, Lady Margaret Beaufort here, we've had uh, um, Henry the Seventh, uh, Henry the Eighth, and Elizabeth the First um, all stay here at the palace mm. um, along with um, uh, the, uh, the famous royal uh, procession that left um, uh, Collie Weston. They, they stayed here for three weeks before heading north um, to uh, for the marriage of uh, to uh, James the Fourth. That's right, because Margaret, they, they, I think the royal party came from London, didn't they? they Up did. to Collie Weston, yes. and there was the, everybody was there. I think they were all here to really say goodbye to Margaret. Absolutely. On her way, and it's here in Collie Weston they actually literally waved her off. That's didn't right. They? Absolutely. So she was on her way to becoming queen at that point. Yes. So um, at that point, I think it was around 1502, 1503. There was a large amount of building work that happened here at the palace site. Okay. Um, obviously, to get ready for the. Um, for the royal procession that was obviously scheduled to come through here. So um, we have various records of, of the palace itself, um, you know, roughly how big it was um, in terms of, you know, what, what was here on site. Um, we just don't know exactly where it was physically within Collie Weston. So Collie Weston itself is a, it's a small village, isn't it? Yes. And, yeah. and a very quaint, pretty little village here. Um, but we don't know, despite the fact this was a major, important Tudor site, we know it's somewhere around here, but you don't know where, and that's what you're looking for. Absolutely. So what we've, um, to try and um, narrow the search down, um, in essence, what we've looked at, first of all, is um, we've, got, we've got some key um, things to go on. We've got three areas of the village that have been scheduled. Um, so we're working, um, we've, we've actually completed geophysics on two of the areas. 
And um, we also have other um, uh, points of reference that we've, um, we've tried to help to facilitate and narrow down the search has been we've used drone footage. So we've had, um, uh, you know, the locals have been absolutely fantastic. You know, they've, they've offered us free services for drone surveys and the like. And so we've managed to survey the entire area, have a really good look at it. We've looked at old Google records to see where there's dry lines emerging and so on and so forth. And then we've, uh, we've started the process of, um, of fundraising. Um, so that's enabled us to get a number of geophysics um, reports completed um, on the sites. And, and following that, we now have some targets to be going at. Go so today, in answer to your question, yeah. this, why we're here today is because we've got some targets on this lawn. Initially, we, we got very excited <laughs> yes. and thought, oh, you know, maybe we're onto something. But it's actually turned out to be natural geology, that part. Ah, I see. So, oh, well, there you go. I know, but that's why we have to leave it to <laughs> the experts. Have, you have to keep <laughs> going, that's right. So, so moving on, how is this project going to evolve this, this summer and beyond? Hmm. What, what are your plans? So over the course of the next um, one to two months, um, we've got two major sites, in essence, that we need to, um, to complete archaeology on. Um, the first area is a scheduled area, so um, we need to get a scheduled monument consent just to complete the dig um, on that, and that will happen in the next two to three months. And then we have um, an area in the upper paddocks that we're, we're hoping to dig as well, and that should happen fairly fairly soon, um, where we're hoping to get into the, uh, into the, um, the detail of, of what the Tudor Garden, in essence, looked at. Right, okay. And what, what, what would be just a great result for you then at the end of this dig? Well, Chris? we set ourselves the brief for finding the location, and probably a little bit more optimistically, the extent of the palace. If we could tick the first box, great. We can do as much of the second box, better still. Okay. And I understand that th th there's going to be a, a day of celebration, let's call it, or two days of celebration at the end of the dig. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and maybe how people can come along and see what you've been Indeed, doing here? Indeed, yes. So um, what, we've, what, we've, um, what, we've, what we're going to do is um, on the 31st of August and the 1st of September, we're going to be pulling all of this information together. Um, it's going to be a day not just for the hardcore historians out there who want the detail, we're also going to make this a family event as well. So apart from having the results of what we have concluded over the next three months, um, with all the hard work that's been put together, we're going to pull it together, say, look, this is what we think we've found or, or not found, um, and to make the, uh, the event um, appealing to families, um, et cetera, we've, we're going to be having um, uh, things like Tudor musicians coming to attend the event, uh, we've got famous historians. We're going to have breakdowns of things like geophysics, etc., so that people can get a little bit of interest in, in what's so it's going on. Going to be very atmospheric. And Tudor very entertainment. Yes, we've got um, uh, you know we've got not only the village hall booked, we've got the church booked as well with a larger capacity, um, where of course we we do have um, a, a part of the church um, is the Lady Margaret um, Chapel, um, which is um, so we're going to be having a um, a display in the chapel. And um, what better place um, mm, could Absolutely, we, could we that find? sounds perfect. Yes. That sounds wonderful. So how will people find out more details of that? Do you have a website that people can go we to? We do. It's, um, uh, the website address is colliewestonhistoricalsociety.org.uk. And um, we're putting periodical updates um, on there about what we're doing. Um, but uh, the, the main event itself 
will be publicised over the course of the next month, as soon as we've got the, um, the two days of agenda, the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, and, uh, and hopefully folks will be able to come and not only find out about the palace, but also um, have some fun at the same time. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us and giving us this sneak preview into mm. what you're doing here. And just all I can say is the very best of luck. The Tudor community will be awaiting what you find. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow. There's just so much going on, isn't there? And so many things that we're still finding out, so many things to be discovered. I'm sure many of you will know if you've read my blog how fascinated I am with lost Tudor buildings. So I can't wait to the end of August to find out exactly what they found there. And so that's just to reiterate for you, if you're interested in going along and seeing all the finds and seeing what the latest updates are at Collie Weston, do visit the website, which again is www.colliewestonhistoricalsociety.org org.uk and just to reiterate that weekend is taking place over a Saturday and Sunday that's the 31st of August and the 1st of September so I hope that some of you are going to be able to make it. Before we move on to our next feature let's take a little musical break and listen to a four-part chanson by one of the most important Flemish composers of the Renaissance that was a certain Josquin de Pré and he lived between 1450 and 1521. So this music is from the early Tudor period and perhaps appropriate when we've been thinking about and talking about a palace which was the favoured residence of the Lady Margaret Beaufort. to take a break from the 21st century let's head back in time and go straight over to the TTG news desk where Robert Cole will tell us all about the Tudor news that's hot and breaking. Welcome to the June o'clock news with your newsreader Robert Cole. The headlines for the month of June in the 16th century. Anne Boleyn is crowned Queen of England. Thomas Cromwell is arrested and taken to the Tower. Catherine of Aragon makes impassioned plea at the Legatine Court in Blackfriars. 
and Elizabeth of York gives birth to her second son at Greenwich. Good day. There are scenes of great celebration and rejoicing in the heart of Westminster today, as a new Queen of England was crowned. Anne Boleyn, the 32-year-old daughter of the Earl and Countess of Wiltshire, was crowned with the ancient crown of St Edward the Confessor in a traditional service whose origins reach back over 500 years. The new Queen has sparked great controversy throughout England in recent years since it became clear that the King was determined to put aside his first wife in favour of the niece of the Duke of Norfolk. Nevertheless, having married Lady Anne in a secret ceremony earlier this year, and with the King's divorce ratified by a court at Dunstable just a few days ago, Anne Boleyn, who is thought to be about six months pregnant, has now officially been anointed as Queen of England. Let's go over to our roving reporter Catherine Simmons, who joins us right now from outside of Westminster Abbey. Catherine, what can you tell us about the scenes down there at the Abbey? And how has this event been received by the common people of London? Thank you, Robert. It has been quite a spectacular event so far. Just before 10 o'clock this morning, the Queen processed barefoot, as tradition dictates, from Westminster Hall to the Abbey. She was, of course, accompanied by a great train of the good and the great of London, including the clergy and the brethren of Westminster Abbey. There were also a great number of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting in attendance, as well as earls, marquesses and dukes from every corner of the realm. Directly in front of the Queen came the newly married Henry Grey, Marquess of Dorset, carrying the sceptre of gold. He was followed by the 21-year-old Earl of Arundel, who bore another sceptre, this one topped with an ivory dove, which is of course symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Then, just in front of the Queen, came Charles Brandon, the King's close friend and confidant. He carried St Edward's crown upon a scarlet velvet cushion. As you mentioned, Robert, it is the crown that has been used in the ceremony that has been going on in the Abbey behind me. And this is such an important point. St Edward's crown is usually only used to crown the reigning monarch. But in this instance, His Majesty decreed that the Queen should be crowned with one of the most treasured and symbolic items associated with the mystique of the monarchy. Interesting, Catherine. How have the crowds been reacting then? Well, as you point out, the Queen has been quite a controversial figure. Many are still loyal to the Princess Dowager, Catherine of Aragon. So I have heard this morning some who murmur ill will against the Queen. And I certainly saw for myself a number of people remaining silent as she passed by. However, there are those who see the new Queen as a beacon of light, who will help nurture the new reformed religion in England, and there were many more who just seemed delighted by the spectacle of the coronation procession and cried out, God save the Queen. I think, oh, hold on, the Queen is emerging from the great west doors of the Abbey. Yes, there she is wearing a gown of purple velvet trimmed with ermine with a four-part of cloth of gold. You can just make out the swelling of her belly beneath her heavy robes and the great cloak, also trimmed with ermine which is fastened around her shoulders. As is tradition, the Queen's famed auburn hair flows loosely over her shoulders and she wears a smaller, lighter crown that has been made especially for her to wear after the ceremony upon her head. Robert, she looks simply glorious as the sunlight catches the jewels in that crown and in that carcanet that hangs around her neck. 
She is stepping out into the sunshine with her father on her right-hand side, and the young Lord Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury's son, on her left. I can see Thomas Boleyn is raising his right hand as he smiles and waves, acknowledging the crowd who are all cheering around me at the sight of their newly anointed queen. Okay, Catherine, so where will the Queen go from here? Well, from here she will walk back to Westminster Hall, where an enormous celebratory banquet has been planned for hundreds of guests, and it is expected that amongst the highlights of the banquet will be the arrival of the Duke of Suffolk on horseback. He will ride into the hall as a defender of the Queen's right to rule, another tradition associated with the coronation. Perhaps a little ironic, as it is widely known at court and across London that Charles Brandon is no great friend of the Boleyns. Well, thank you for that, Catherine. It sounds like some celebration. That's Catherine Simmons there reporting from outside Westminster Abbey for the TTG. And that concludes the June o'clock news. The TTG news desk will return again in July, but for now it's back to the 21st century. me wouldn't you have just loved to have been a witness in the crowd that day can you imagine anyway it was great on this occasion to be celebrating a happy event as opposed to last month's visit to the tower of london well that brings us on to the second half of the podcast this month and a couple of weeks back I headed off to Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire in a rather cold and rainy June day to catch up with what Digventures had been doing there over the previous two weeks. They had been looking for a lost Tudor Elizabethan garden. So let's go over right now and catch up with Maya to see what's been found. So here I am, um, this time I'm at Sudley Castle and I'm back talking to Maya from Dig Ventures. Hello. <laughs> now Maya, you and I were talking just a couple of months ago um, on the phone at the time because you were preparing to come here to Sudley Castle with Dig Ventures to pick up on some test digs that you'd done last year. And so now we're here at the end, end of a two-week period, is that right? That's right. I can't believe how quickly time has gone since then. We're now finally actually at the end of our two-week excavation where we've been looking for the remains of a lost Tudor garden. And my word, we've found so much stuff. It has blown us away. Isn't that fantastic? It's been incredible, yeah. So um, I know you, you did your test digs had shown some really interesting things and you thought there might be a lost Tudor garden and possibly a banqueting house. So can you tell us what's been unfolding over the last two weeks and what have you actually found? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favourite things that we've discovered on this excavation is down in what we called Trench Six, where we've unearthed what we think was the original centrepiece of the Tudor Garden. And when I say centrepiece, it's not just any centrepiece, it's absolutely enormous. It's a huge central platform surrounded by a deep circular ditch, which again is surrounded by an even bigger circular mound. 
Wow. So it's a series of concentric circles with kind of with an island in the middle. Uh -huh. And we think the ditch, from what we can see, was clay-lined, which we think means it was designed to hold water. Right. In effect, it means it's an enormous water feature. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think you were, you were talking a little bit about Kenilworth, weren't you, and about the potential parallels between Yeah, so what's really fantastic um, is we don't actually know exactly what this water feature was. We know there was an island in the middle of it, but whether it held a fountain or a statue or could even potentially have been a performance space, um, which is parallel to what they've got at Kenilworth. Um, we know from historical records that this garden is, uh, is where a party for Elizabeth I was hosted in 1592 when she came to visit and celebrate. Yes, we should, probably should talk about the context. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along, we're so excited to get into the archaeology. But yeah, there was a huge party here, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, we think this garden was basically constructed by uh, the third Lord Chandos, who was here at the time on behalf of Elizabeth I for a party as she was going on her summer progress. Um, she arrived on the eve of the fourth anniversary of her victory over the Spanish Armada, so it was, you know, an important date to be celebrating. They constructed this huge garden and banqueting house for her. And we know from some of the historical records that there was feasting and drinking and fireworks and bear baiting, all the usual things you'd have at a Tudor party. Mm. But on top of that, there was a troupe of players who I came see. to perform. Mm. So it's quite possible that they actually did their performance in the centre uh -huh. of that ornamental feature. And you said it was big. I mean, how big are we talking? Can you give us any kind of comparisons? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's probably about 10 metres across. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Today is when we're going to be doing all the measuring and recording, so I could give you a more accurate answer later <laughs> in the day. But for now, just picture something around the size of 10 metres across. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it has been cut in half by a Victorian um, balustrade and what they've been calling a ha-ha. Mm -hmm. But we can see that it would probably have actually continued as a full circle. We've only got half of it left, but... Yeah. Yeah. So, so... Um, what else, what other features are there in this garden? Can you try and give us a picture of what the garden as a whole would look like now that you've been digging for a couple of weeks? Well, so the main bit that we've got is the very centre mm -hmm. and we can see from LIDAR surveys, which are surveys that you do with lasers to pick up um, features in the ground, lumps and bumps, and also from geophysical surveys that we've done and also from earthwork surveys, we can see that there were at least four quarters to the garden each one would have then been subdivided into more quarters and there would have been, uh, well, it would have been a very geometric pattern and kind of layout. Very typical. Very typical, Tudor. absolutely classic Tudor garden. Mm -hmm. And the most exciting thing about that is in one of the corners at the back, mm. in fact, in either corner at the back of the garden, we've got these two very large mounds, mm. raised platforms that have been levelled off and according to a very traditional Tudor layout, that's exactly where you would put a banqueting house. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've opened a trench mm -hmm. over one of those mounds as well, and that's where we've do been... Do tell, do yeah. tell. So what, what does that unearth? That's where we've been investigating the possibility of the banqueting house, mm. where Queen Elizabeth herself may have feasted and enjoyed herself. And what we've unearthed so far are the mains of this absolutely stonkingly huge... <laughs> Everything I'm discovering in this it's garden huge. is huge, but a really impressive wall, basically, made out of um, quite chunky pieces of stone, some quite delicately carved. We've got some fake columns. We've got 
what look like protruding windows. We've got bits that look like they were meant to be rosettes. So we think it was quite elaborately carved. Mm. Um, one of the questions we have at the moment is whether the stone that was used for the construction of this wall mm. was freshly carved specifically for the purpose or whether it came from an older building. Right. We found some parallels between the carvings with some of the stones from Winchcombe Abbey. And Winchcombe Abbey, for those people who don't know, Sudley is just outside of the sort of small, well, it would have been a village in those days, wouldn't it? It's a small town maybe now of Winchcombe here in Gloucestershire. Yeah. And, it, and it had uh, an abbey. Yeah. And so that's which, where you're referring to. Yeah, which at some point in history was torn down. And apparently, so the story goes, some of the stones used to fill in the moat at Sudley Castle. Oh, huh. So it's quite possible that some of the stones were reused to build this banqueting house. But that's one of the questions we still have. And, uh, well, they were big recyclers, weren't they? The they Tudors. were. They were very good at recycling things. And that's stone was things. such a valuable commodity as well. Yeah, especially so, carved stone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's been really exciting to see that emerge out of the ground. Um, we've been finding all sorts of bits of pottery as well, some early medieval, which has been a nice surprise, suggesting there may be something even older uh -huh. in the field as well that predates it. But also bits of cooking pot as well have been coming out from near where we think the banqueting house was. So do you think they were prepared? preparing the food on site or would they just be carrying it over on in, in pots? How, how did that work, do you know? I couldn't say. No. I could speculate, yeah. but <laughs> I couldn't say. We have found a few pieces which suggest, you know, maybe that there was some of the cooking pots being carried up there. We've also found quite an extraordinary amount of uh, pig bones as well. So whether that reflects what they were eating at the feast mm. or a feast that took place around that time, we're not entirely sure at the moment. We're still in the speculative phases mm. about exactly what all of this evidence means. Mm. But as we start to send some of this material off to specialists and get things analysed and start piecing everything together, we'll get a better a better understanding of exactly what was going on. In so this that's garden. what happens next, doesn't it? That that will be what's happening. What over the winter, or, yeah. you know, from now on and over the winter time. Yeah, exactly. So an excavation is kind of like the data collection mm. part of a project, and what comes next is the data analysis and the write up, and where we draw our conclusions and decide whether there are still more questions to be answered. Mm. And if there are more questions to answer, what will happen then? <laughs> We'll definitely come back next year for more. I mean, what we've found so far is is impressive and you can see it and it's there, but we still have loads of questions to answer. You know, was this banqueting house made out of the ruins of another building? Was there an earlier building below it? There have been rumours of a medieval manor house and even an Anglo-Saxon palace on the site as well. Oh. This water feature, we still need to get to the bottom of it. We need to find out really whether it was lined with clay and exactly how it was constructed and even what took place in the centre mm. of this huge water feature we think we've got. Mm. So there's still loads of questions to address. And as you asked about earlier, the um, the exact layout of the garden, that's something we could else we could also start to look mm. at. Where did the paths go? What were the flower beds made of? What kind of things perhaps even were planted in it we could potentially address if we came back for another excavation mm. next year? And what do you think... I know it's early to say because you haven't done any all of this analysis, but from what you've seen in the last two weeks, what are we going to learn maybe about Tudor gardens? Anything new that perhaps we, we don't really know or haven't seen before? Yeah, for sure. So this is, we think, one of the very few Tudor gardens that actually survives with some of the paths in place. So we'll be able to learn how they were constructed, what they were made of. We could potentially learn about how the flower beds were constructed, which is one of the biggest questions um, the head gardener here at Sudley Castle has. 
with banqueting houses as well. Although there are some studies of them historically, we've got a few descriptions and we've got a few illustrations of what some of them looked like. We don't actually know whether this one was a very temporary building or whether it was something more permanent. Mm. And we don't really have that many archaeological excavations that have taken place on the site of one of these temporary banqueting houses. So this is the first time we're really getting an opportunity to know what these buildings looked like in the ground and understand what their archaeological footprint is. Mm. So mm. It's, it's really quite a unique opportunity very, to, yeah. to build up a picture from an archaeological perspective. Very significant mm. indeed. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for updating us all about what you found. And um, just thinking ahead then, you said perhaps you'll be here next year. And what, what plans are afoot Then people can start maybe making plans in their own diary? Yeah, we're already starting to make plans about coming back for a two-week excavation. And on top of that, we're starting to plot our next Dignation Festival, which is uh, a two-day festival of archaeology that takes place on-site at an archaeological location. We'll have speakers and music and food and access to the trenches to see the archaeology being uncovered in action mm, so yeah. that's all still firmly in the planning stages but if you're into a bit of Tudor history and archaeology this might just be the party for you taking place on the site of a party attended by Elizabeth the first herself sounds amazing. what could be better I'm than that <laughs> <laughs> and do we have any idea when in the year that might be not sure yet, we'll Not have sure. to wait and see. Okay, but so we just need to keep our eyes peeled and maybe, folks, um, I will keep my eyes peeled and, and post about it and I'm sure you'll hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure... Blogosphere. Yeah, we'll make sure it's all over social media and all, do, all over Tudor Travel Guide as well. Well, thank you so much, Maya, <laughs> for taking the time to talk to me today and to update everybody. No problem. I better get back to the trenches. You better have, because <laughs> there's a whole banqueting house to continue finding. <laughs> was Maya from Dig Ventures getting us right up to date with what's been unfolding at Sudley over the summer. So look, there's a couple of fantastic dates there for the diary and if you are planning ahead for next year to come to the UK, do bear in mind both these repeat of the two-week archaeological excavation and also the two-day Dignation Festival. And as you heard Maya say, we don't have dates for that at the moment, but you can keep your eyes peeled on www.digventures.com. And of course, as I mentioned in that interview, I'll certainly be keeping in touch with what's going on and make sure that that information gets to you via future podcasts and across social media. So let's take a little musical break now and in keeping with what we have just been talking about, this is Queen Elizabeth's Galliard by John Dowland. Let's enjoy some wonderful tuna music.
Oh, how that music conjures just visions of Elizabeth and her courtiers dining, feasting and dancing and just enjoying the beauty of those quite enormous, as it turns out, Tudor gardens. So anyway, while I was at Sudley, I had chance to meet up with Melita Thomas, one of the two co-founders of The Tudor Times. Now, The Tudor Times have recently published their latest book, The Tudor Book of the Garden. And as Melita was also at Sudley that day, it seemed a perfect opportunity for the two of us to catch up. And I started off by asking her, why this book? Well, we were very interested in Tudor Gardens generally. It's one of the areas that um, both Deborah, my colleague, and myself are particularly interested in gardens generally. Uh, we had a lot of success with the Tudor Book of Days. We were very interested. And we thought, well, we could do something similar on a gardening theme. Because one of the things that I find as a gardener myself is it's really hard to come across a good garden journal that enables you to uh, record information about your garden, what plants you've got, and an absolute favourite thing for most gardeners is where you got a plant from and who gave it to you and who you shared plants with and when they first came out in this season and what birds and flowers and things you've seen. So we wanted to put all that together, but in the context of Tudor gardens because the Tudors loved their gardens. How did you go about kind of putting this together. Are you a king gardener yourself? I am a king gardener myself, okay, yes. Right, so that, that, that was, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was really helpful for thinking about what should be in a garden journal. And then it was looking at the Tudor aspects of it, which was um, identifying uh, Tudor plants, and particularly interested in what's named in Shakespeare, because he, he was clearly a great gardener as well. There are so many plants and flowers that are just in all of his plays. And it is... Uh, there are people who, who want to have Shakespeare's plants in their gardens mm -hmm. because it's it's a real link with the past that you can actually bring into today. Absolutely, it's a living thing, isn't it? That yes. you can actually have a connection to our forefathers and uh, and, and to know what they grew exactly. in their gardens. Yes. So so there was some research as to what Shakespeare named in his different plays, but also then the really difficult bit was finding which particular plant because you know you can say roses but what kind of roses what we think of today is the modern hybrid teas and of course that's completely unknown for Shakespeare uh, their roses were the, um, the the sweet briar and the eglantine and the damask rose occasionally and of course the, the red rose of Lancaster which is the the apothecary's rose and the right rose of York the Alba semiplanar so it was it was going through and finding out what was the species and the mm. um, the actual cultivar, if that's mm. the right word, I'm not a garden specialist, mm. that was known in Shakespeare's time, and getting the botanical name for that so people can really recreate it. And uh, similarly with the vegetables, so many of those. No, you know, our listeners will have just heard me speak to Maya about this amazing, fabulous, mm. huge, huge Tudor garden that's here at Sudley, and of course, the wealthy, I assume, had a certain type of garden, but maybe it was different for the commoner who might be sort of just having a garden, I suppose, that they lived off, you know, because gardening was, you know, it gave you food, didn't it, as much as being full pleasure. So what are the differences, if there are any? Everybody from, as you say, the smallest cottager had some sort of garden plot and, and that was uh, made the difference of subsistence farming. An awful lot of um, cabbage, I think, went on. Leeks, very keen on leeks. But 
and then as as you went up the social scale, there was more ornamental. But even at the top of the scale, of course, they couldn't just fly in through from goodness knows where. Mm. Everybody had to grow their own food. So in a in a in a state like Sudley, there would have been acres and acres of practical gardening as well as uh, the, the the ornamental. And they tended to mix things in in what the French call a potager, where you've got uh, ornamental vegetables in with ornamental flowers. And they didn't have quite the same distinction, I don't think, as we have between what's useful and what's ornamental, because so many of the things that we think of as ornamental, they're used for food, or they're used for medicine, or they're used for um, laundry, or they're used for um, decorating the houses. So there wasn't a, a sort of a black and white line between the two. But clearly, you know, the more you needed to grow vegetables, then then the fewer, you know, nice herbs that you were growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and did did the way the Tudors garden change over time? Because we obviously have over a hundred year span of Tudor history from sort of the late medieval through to early modern. How did things change at all? The actual practicality of gardening. If you look at the garden tools, you can see that they're exactly the same, pretty much as as the garden tools we use today. The fork, the hoe, the spade, the the knife. Uh, what changed was that gardening speciality in the medieval period, um, gardening experimentation and grafting and development of new plants took place in the monastery gardens. But when the monasteries were dissolved, a number of the chief gardeners then became uh, available to uh, work with the nobles and so grafting was a big thing, fruit, they're, they're very keen on fruit. And the other big thing in the period was the influx of new plants from the Americas. So at the end of the period, you had the potato and the tomato and uh, those, those staples of modern food that we, we have now, which were all new to them. Um, so the, some of the techniques of grafting and improving change, but not, not a huge amount, no. Okay, okay. Now, you've obviously spent a lot of time looking at and researching all the different Tudor plants. What are your personal favourites, and what could you recommend if people were wanting to create a little patch of Tudor heaven for themselves in their garden? Lavender's always got to be there. Um, it was a, It's a marvellous herb. It's, it's suitable for cleaning, of course. Lavender, laundry, the whole... You know, the word comes from the, the, the same root. There's the scent of it. You can eat it. It uh, attracts other pollinators. So lavender is going to be one of the t- chief ones. Uh, carnations, they're, they're not fashionable nowadays, but the Tudors loved their carnations or their guinea flowers. And the scent of cloves in the evening on a, in a warm sun is a very very Tudor scent. So I'd, I'd go with my carnations, lavender. Um the other, they liked roses, mm. um, as I say, the, 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 the single old-fashioned types of roses. And some of the herbs that they used, um, marjoram and oregano, very popular. Mm. Uh, it's it's so hard to pick. There's so many lovely flowers. But, and of course, you know, a lot of people listening to this will at some point be planning trips. They want to hit the road and do their Tudor road trip. And are there gardens that people can go and see that you know that, that, that are really beautiful Tudor gardens that you would recommend? Uh, yes, there is a list in the Tudor Book of the Garden. There's a list at the back. Um, and we've listed ones that are recreations of known Tudor gardens because clearly, you know, quite a lot of people garden in a Tudor style. But Kenilworth is a marvellous reconstruction of a privy garden that was created by Robert Dudley for uh, Elizabeth I. 
Um, and by the way, they have their 10th year anniversary this year, so there's ah. all sorts of celebrations going on around Kenilworth. I think we're right around that. Let's go there. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust have another beautiful Elizabethan um, Shakespearean garden. Uh, Sudley, where we are at the moment, there's a Victorian interpretation, but it's on the same site as the original mm. Tudor garden. Uh, so those are, those are some top ones. I mean, they're, they're yes, yes they are beautiful lovely. gardens to go and see and enjoy. So your book is out now, isn't it? People yes. can get their hands on it. So how do they do that? It's available at shop.tudortimes.co.uk or if you go to our main website, Tudor Times, uh, you can see there's a, there's a shop button in the top right. Uh, we do ship all over the world, um, but you can also get it on Amazon. That's wonderful. And you've also got your Tudor Book of Days available in the same place, which I also yes. own, so I heartily yes. recommend. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, any, what's the next project for you, Melita, well, before we say goodbye? The, the next project for well, the next project for Tudor Times is we've 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 got we're still thinking along the theme of the of the Tudor books of days. So so there might be something to announce on that in the not too distant future. Uh, me personally, I'm going back to university to do a master's in historical research. Oh wow! And my new book is coming out in September. And my colleague is also um, starting on a master's course. Okay. And what's your new book called? It's The House of Grey, and it's published by Ambly Publishing, and it will be uh, available. It's available now for pre-order, and it comes out on September the 15th. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you And uh, I heartily recommend people to head on over and to the Tudor Chimes shop, where there's all sorts of goodies, actually. So um, <laughs> hopefully they can pick up their copy of your Tudor Book of the Garden there. So thanks very much for talking to us today, Melissa. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So that's thanks to Melita Thomas from the Tudor Times for taking us on that promenade through some really interesting tidbits of information about the Tudors and their gardening. And the Tudor book of the garden is, as Melita says, a wonderful companion. If you love your gardening and perhaps you're interested in trying to create a little bit of, little patch of Tudor heaven, in your own backyard, then it would be a wonderful gift to yourself or perhaps someone you know who does love just that. So that does bring us to the end of June's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our many and varied interviews today. There are certainly some events on the horizon that you can start looking forward to and potentially planning into your diary. Um, do remember, of course, if you're thinking of coming along to Sudley, either during this summer holidays or you're planning ahead for next year, don't forget that the Tudor Travel Guide has its very own Tudor Day Out at Sudley Castle mini guide. This is a full colour digital mini guide specifically looking at and describing Tudor Sudley. And you can pick up that or indeed any of our range of digital mini guide brochures, whether they be for single day outs or you're planning your Tudor weekend away at the Tudor Travel Guide shop and all you need to do is pop over to the blog at www.thetudortravelguide.com and see the shop and tour section in the menu bar and that will take you through where you can browse and make your selection. Looking ahead now to the Tudor Travel Show for next month, we'll be continuing the theme around Elizabeth I and taking a trip 
to Kenilworth Castle to explore the historic visit there that Elizabeth made in the summer of 1575. And I'll also be talking to Professor Susan Doran about an artefact of Elizabeth that has intrigued me for a long time, and that is the Chequers Ring. So do come back, stay tuned, and I look forward to talking to you again in July. Until then, happy time traveling. Thank you.